Hello and a warm welcome to the latest edition of the Penguin Podcast. I'm Richard E. Grant and in this episode I'm joined by a guest who over the past few years has been described variously as an undaunted freedom fighter, the most dangerous woman in Britain, one of the UK's most inspiring political figures and simply cheerfully argumentative. She's the director of Liberty and the author of On Liberty. Welcome, Shami Chakrabarti. Thank you, Richard. Shami, do you have a favourite description from that list that I've just read out? Of course I do. Um, You know, to be called the most dangerous woman in Britain by the Sun newspaper is just quite simply the greatest honour and the gift that kept on giving for many years. Unfortunately, um, that honour has now been compromised because the Daily Mail newspaper earlier this year during the general election campaign decided that that title was no longer mine and gave it to um, a charismatic politician north of the border. And to add insult to injury, Nicola Sturgeon is actually a few years younger than me as well. Oh, so there we are. But you, at seven foot, remain a giant. <laughs> this is audio, isn't know, it? Yeah. If this is audio, yes, I am seven foot, and yes. it's been uh, it's been a real trial sometimes in life to cope yeah. with that. Yeah. So obviously, I'm being you know, tongue in cheek here, but how important is it to try and keep a sense of humour given the work you do? I think it's incredibly important to try and keep a, a sense of humour because you can't be an effective campaigner, let alone a human rights campaigner, if you're not human and you're not able to connect with people. So in particular when you're broadcasting and you're um, you're effectively a witness and a commentator on really pretty awful events in the world, um, there aren't a lot of jokes in torture and internment and so on in, in, in a two-minute soundbite on the news. But I think in particular when you get a little more time and space and you're speaking to an audience and doing Q&A for you know, an hour or longer, it's quite important to show that you, you share their concerns, you share their humanity. That's what human rights are all about, after all. I was once speaking many years ago to an audience, I think in Bristol, about all sorts of, all sorts of terrible things uh, that were being done in, in our name during the war on terror. I talk about them in the book. And at the end of this, um, this rather grim and worthy talk that I'd given, a young woman academic um, uh, came up to me. At the end of the talk, she didn't, she didn't do this in, in, in public. She, she spared me that. And she said, Shami, it was very nice to hear you. And I learned so much about all these terrible things that are being done in our name. So thank you for that. But, but do remember, Martin Luther King never said, I have a nightmare. And I thought, good point, well made, you know, and um, and I've tried to remember that ever since. If um, if people don't know about terrible things that are happening in the world, then they, they, they can't do anything about them. But but equally, if life just seems impossible and and challenges uh, are hopeless, then, then what's the point in trying to do something about them? So there has to be light and shade, I think, when you're trying to motivate people to to make things better. Please could you shed some light on this? Liberty was set up over 80 years ago. What are the organisation's key principles? Well, you're quite right. 1934, set up in response to the police brutality in in putting down the hunger marches when they finally got to to Hyde Park. They were duffed up by the Metropolitan Police who used agents provocateurs, plainclothes officers pretending to be hunger marchers and behaving violently. Uh, A group of people, many of them writers like... H.G. Wells and Vera Britton and so on met in the crypt of St. Martin in the Fields Church, not far from here. 
and uh, d- decided something must be done. Now, today they would have tweeted or blogged or Facebooked, and, but of course they couldn't do that because of 1934. No internet. I tried to explain to my 13-year-old son there was once a world without the internet. He looks at me as if I remember a world without the printing press. But, yeah. but they decided that they would keep watch from then on over the spirit of liberty in our country. And in the subsequent 81 years, we have become a modern human rights organisation. We are here to promote and protect the fundamental rights and freedoms of, of everyone in this country. Perfect introduction to the first clip from the audiobook which you have read of On Liberty, um, in which you describe your move from the Home Office to your new location and the rather surprising timing of that. I went from the plush offices of a well-kept government building to the tatty converted shop that was then Liberty's base. I spent my first day absorbing the culture shock of my move from a Goliath Department of State to a David-sized NGO. There was warmth and good intention, but little focus or natural light. It was days before anyone would fix my computer But in contrast with the rather bizarre practice in much of the public sector, the employer provided milk for tea and coffee. I remember looking in the fridge and asking about the ownership of a particular carton. A bemused new colleague gave the wonderful reply, that's Liberty Milk. I was told that I'd been employed to inject strategic thinking into Liberty litigation and went home musing on the likely challenges and priorities for the next few years. My second day at work was the 11th of September. After lunch with one of my new colleagues, I returned to the news of a plane crashing into the first tower of the World Trade Centre. Young trainees and interns followed events on their computers rather than TV, a new phenomenon. Was it a hideous accident? But that sick feeling in the stomach was quickly answered by the images of the second plane. What a moment to have left the security business in pursuit of civil liberties. Shami, as with all my guests on the Penguin podcast, you've brought with you a number of objects to the studio that shaped and inspired your book. And the first one is very much tied up with the issues post 9-11. Please, could you tell us what it is? So here we have a rather beautiful quite large goldfish bowl yeah. and um, I, I refer to, to the goldfish bowl in the, in, in the first chapter that deals with privacy the near death of privacy that um, we are experiencing. Um, it, it perhaps didn't quite begin with 9-11, but it was certainly accelerated post 9-11. You know, um, politicians rushed to say, well, that's it now, and we all have to learn to live with being watched all the time. Mm-hmm. I think there's a quote in, in the book from, from Jack Straw pretty much to that effect. Yeah, what, what would it feel like to, to literally know no privacy? to feel that you're being watched and listened to all the time. Now, things are so much worse in that respect now than they were even uh, in the aftermath of 9-11 when people were clamouring for identity cards, etc., etc. The government is is currently proposing a, a new investigatory powers bill, which I've been studying with my colleagues, and it pretty much proposes the near end of any online privacy as we live more and more intimately online. I think some younger people probably live more intimately online than they do in the real world. Mm -hmm. 
the sorts of capacities, the technological capacities that there are to monitor us all of the time, not suspects anymore, not targeting surveillance towards individual suspects, but, but watching and listening to entire populations. That is what we're living with now in, in this new technological and security environment, and, and that's what the, um, what the goldfish bowl symbolises. And here's the problem. Privacy can't be an absolute right. We are social creatures. Mm-hmm. You know, just the fact that we are sitting here together and I'm answering these questions, I can't have absolute privacy, nor do I want it. But on the other hand, to have no privacy at all is to live without intimacy, dignity or trust. And and you can't actually protect your other rights and freedoms either if you don't have uh, a modicum of privacy. You can't have fair trials without confidential legal counsel. You can't have uh, decent medical care without confidentiality. Um, you can't have fair elections without a secret ballot. Uh, and sometimes you can't even have free speech without an aspect of, of anonymity. So, so privacy, on the one hand, has to be balanced against other societal and individual interests. But on the other hand, it's incredibly important in a democracy and, um, and, and for, for humanity, I think. Shami, prior to Liberty, you worked as a barrister for the Home Office, or Mordor, as you called it. What was most Mordor-like about it for you? Well, I, I joke when I call it the Dark Tower or Mordor or various things like that. I, I do still have a lot of uh, affection for a lot of people that I met there and a great deal of gratitude for, for what I learned there. I, I learnt most of my human rights law in the Home Office, granted as a Jedi Knight on the dark side of the Force. And, um, and I learnt so much about the relationship between law and politics and policy and Westminster and Whitehall and the courts and so on. So that was a completely invaluable experience. However, I did learn over time the way in which legislation is rushed and is often used um, for, for politics rather than sensible policy. And that particularly when bad things happen, ministers will rush to the TV cameras or to the dispatch box and promise to make everything right with a new rushed piece of legislation, which won't make everything right uh, and sometimes makes things a great deal worse. So any key piece of advice or experiences that have helped you as your career has progressed? I think that, goodness me, if I were looking back now and advising the sort of young lawyer that I was in my sort of mid-20s when I when I worked in, in the Home Office, I think I would try to inspire greater confidence. I think you can be confident without being arrogant. And mm-hmm. I think that I would advise young women in particular to, you know, to put on whatever gown or jacket it is and say, right, this isn't me now. This is a, this is an important role that I'm performing and I can and will perform very well. My my motto now in my, you know, in my middle years is anyone's equal, no one's superior. That it is possible to to take up the appropriate space in any meeting room, in any difficult debate. So I think that's probably the advice I would give to my younger self and and to to younger people sort of in, in the law, but probably in any profession. I'd like to play another clip from the audiobook of On Liberty, and it takes us back to your childhood and a discussion about the death penalty with your father when thoughts about your career first appeared. Let's have a listen. My own horror at the death penalty began my personal human rights journey. For this, I have my father to thank. As an 11-year-old girl watching the TV news in my parents' North West London semi 
I remember being transfixed by the seemingly endless updates in the hunt for the Yorkshire Ripper. One evening, especially unnerved by the coverage, I said something about what they should do to this animal or monster or something like that when he was caught. In my dad's first and perhaps last Atticus Finch moment, he asked me to consider that no justice system capable of human design or operation can ever be perfect. What would it feel like, I remember him saying, to be the one wrongly convicted person in a thousand or million, walking to the gallows or electric chair or lethal injection? What would it feel like when every due process appeal was exhausted and when even your own family no longer believed you, yet you went to your death knowing that you didn't do that terrible thing for which you were about to be executed? That evening, my father's words captured my imagination and turned my stomach. And it makes the hairs on my neck stand up even today as I write. I duly reconsidered and never looked back. If I went on in adult life to become the bugbear of so many authoritarian men, they only have one of their own number, my dear old dad, to blame. So, Shami Chakrabarti, the tireless campaigner, runner of rings around politicians, the formidable performer in public debate. This is the Shami that many people will have in their minds. But I was struck by a much softer side when reading your book, in particular when talking about your parents. And you were clearly a very close-knit unit. I think we were. And some people have said of the book that, you know, it's not that personal, I suppose, because there isn't lots of, I don't know, exciting kiss and tell or spilling of beans and state secrets or anything like that. But for me, I put the personal material that I thought was very formative of me as a human rights activist. And that story is one I've told before, and it is my earliest memory of feeling moved politically. And it was the beginning of my human rights journey. Now, of course, I've told the story many times before, and once some years ago, my father read that story in a Sunday supplement of some kind. And one of the things about having British-Asian parents... Mm -hmm is that they um, have lots of friends who are news agents. And so it's like having a sort of personal cutting service because you're a news agent, you're standing there looking at the papers and the magazines all day and you see yeah. your friend's children. And so somebody had tipped my dad off that I'd told this story to a Sunday supplement and the next time I saw him, he said, you've been speaking about me to the to the newspapers and I thought, oh, no, I've, I've invaded his privacy, he's upset, I didn't ask permission and so on and I apologised. And he said, no, no, that's not the problem. He said, the problem is that I have no recollection of that incident whatsoever. And he said that it made him very nervous about all the bad things he must have said. And I have to say that now I rather sympathise with him because, you know, uh, my own son is 13. We know that young people just absorb, I don't know, incidents, anecdotes, everything, like an absolute sponge. And, you know, it's really salutary. You never know what it is that you have said or done to a young person that is going to be memorable, formative, crucial to their lives. So it's like that Stephen Sondheim song from Into the Woods, Children Will Listen. Absolutely. So absolutely. Has, so do you are you hyper vigilant and aware of, of how you uh, educate your son? I think I am probably hyper vigilant, but um but it's probably too late. You know, you, you can be hyper-vigilant after the fact. I can remember when he was really quite small, he, you know, I don't know, six or seven, mm -hmm. and, you know, I was tired and I come 
back from work and it was time to go to bed and and um, he wouldn't go and and I sort of said something like, do you have to argue about absolutely everything? And the little frown turned to a grin and he sort of said, Mum, we're related. It's in my DNA. And I said, you Perfect come here nice. and I'll show you what the police do to children's DNA <laughs> these days. It's all taken and collected. Were you argumentative with your father? Absolutely. I wasn't... I was from a, very... Right from the get-go, I did you can the, remember? I was the archetypal precocious nightmare. And actually, my son is less precocious because he's actually more knowledgeable. I think he founds his arguments on rather more substance than I did. I was just instinctively argumentative from a very young age. And And was your mother argumentative? Nope. So I say, I mean, I say in the in the acknowledgements, I thank my mother for, for, for reading to me and my yeah. father for arguing with me, and that's pretty much how it was. She was the great reader and the lover of literature and cinema and all of those wonderful virtues. My father was the sort of pugnacious, you know, metaphorical street fighter, and I, I suppose I have those, those two elements in me. And what age were you when you had your Atticus moment with your father? That... I think I was 11, about 11. 11. You know, the hunt for the Yorkshire Ripper. Yeah, absolutely. I suppose for some people it's younger and for others a bit older. But, yeah, that was the moment, that that story, me, you know, piping up in favour of the death penalty. It's terrible, isn't it? That's my dark secret, isn't it? <laughs> uh, and I wear it like my bleeding liberal heart on my sleeve in my yeah. book. <laughs> There's one piece of legislation around which your career and this book essentially revolves which is the Human Rights Act. And your next object is one that is linked with this. Can you show me what it is? This is um, a very touching, particularly with hindsight, photograph of of Anne-Marie Element and her sisters. Mm -hmm. And um, the book isn't just my story. It's, It's the stories of so many people who are part of our modern human rights journey in this country. And the Human Rights Act is so maligned, but it has been so important to so many vulnerable and grieving people. Anne-Marie served in the Royal Military Police. She came from a military family with a long tradition of of that kind of service. Uh, She was very proud to serve in the Royal Military Police. And in this photograph, she is wearing her uniform flanked by her two sisters. And um, she, during her service in Germany, complained that she had been raped by some of her comrades. And, of course, at the time, when you made a, a, a complaint within the Royal Military Police, you were investigated by, guess who, the Royal Military Police. Mm-hmm. And it was a short and cursory investigation, ending with no further action, save that she then became the subject of bullying um, for having broken ranks in that way. And the bullying became unbearable, and after a relatively short time, she took her own life. There was no doubt about the cause of death. It was suicide. So to begin with, it's an open and shut inquest. That's the end of the story, except that my my uh, legal colleague, Emma Norton, a wonderful campaigning solicitor, took up the cause on, on the part of the, the family and was able to use the positive obligations in the Human Rights Act, the right to life and the right not to be subject to inhuman and degrading treatment, able to use these obligations on the state to get a new inquest and subsequent to that was actually able to get a new rape investigation, even though Anne-Marie is now gone, a new rape investigation by a civilian police force. And not so long ago, two soldiers were charged, charged only, 
with Anne-Marie's rape. And I think it's a really, it's, it's, it's a heartbreaking but ultimately very important story about how the Human Rights Act is not just about you know, criminals and terrorists and foreign nationals and, you know, all the stuff that you read about in your newspaper. Mm-hmm. It's it's to protect all of us. And it is sometimes the only protection that the vulnerable have from abuses of power. Human rights has become such a loaded term. Why do you think that is? I think the Human Rights Act has suffered from from a number of, of different challenges. An obvious challenge is that it came into force 11 months before the Twin Towers atrocity, before 9-11. So bills of rights and human rights instruments all over the world were going to face challenge in a time of fear and a time of terror, and this was an infant human rights act. Another problem is that the new Labour government that initiated it but passed it with cross-party support got perhaps cold feet fairly early on and didn't do the public education around the act that that really is required. And so with the absence of, of public education and the advent of the war on terror, people's understanding of the act, the narrative around the act was just what they were reading in the papers and seeing on TV and that's all about terror suspects and they can't be sent to places of torture and they're being interned, etc, etc. And that's how people began to see the act rather than identifying it with it themselves. And that, if you like, is the perfect storm. And, of course, behind that, you have some people's intentions. You have powerful people who don't like being held to account. You have some media interests who hate privacy rights. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're, they're happy with free expression, which, by the way, is only protected by the Human Rights Act. But some media groups don't like the fact that there is an Article 8 right to respect for people's privacy. Phone hacking, etc., etc. need I say more? That's not always attractive in the context of their of their business model. So, And, of course, governments like to be all-powerful. You know, governments of all persuasions like to be all-powerful and get irritated by being held to account in the court. So, uh, you know, a lot of things have, have coalesced to be challenging to a very young, modern British Bill of Rights, which is what the Human Rights Act is. But it is invaluable to, to the protection of everyone in this country. Your next object is closely associated with the Human Rights Act, in particular Article 3, no one shall be subjected to torture or to inhuman or degrading treatment or punishment. What have you brought with you today? Well, this is, again, it's just highly symbolic. It's a it's a black pillowcase, and I'm using it as a symbol of hooding, which is one of the torture techniques that was banned by Prime Minister Ted Heath many years ago in the 70s in the context of the troubles in Northern Ireland and and, and prisoners, but somehow crept back into use during the war on terror. And uh, there is a chapter in the book called No Torture, No Compromise. And, you know, that is the dark heart of the war on terror, that great democracies, great unbroken democracies like the United States and the UK were prepared to engage in torture in freedom's name. And... um, Yes, it's not a happy chapter at all. I was so struck by two quotes from Tony Blair in the same month of December in 2005. On the 7th of December of that year, he said, torture cannot be justified in any set of circumstances at all. On the 22nd of December 2005, he says, well, it, it all depends on what you mean by rendition. If it is something that is unlawful, I totally disapprove of it. If it is lawful, I don't disapprove of it. So 
Is this where grey becomes very grey indeed and somatics come to the fore around the word torture, a word that may appear to be quite black and white, but in practice is anything but? This is really important. If human rights are really going to survive and sustain and endure and thrive, they have to exist not just in the courtroom, but in the living room, the newsroom, the classroom, the parliament chamber, the cabinet room. And it can't be a matter of just looking for ways out and technicalities in the way that you might do with your tax lawyer. Mm. You have to really believe in these values in your heart and it's particularly important with our leaders because, yes, the courtroom is a, is a last resort, but by the time you get to a courtroom there's already been an abuse and possibly the abuse is endemic. And so your example and, and that quote, I, th I think, is very telling that, uh, you know, we start off by talking about right and wrong and then suddenly we start talking about, well, if it's legal. So if uh, if rendition is something that we can somehow legalise or we can come up with arguments. I mean, at the end of the day, some clever White House lawyers once told President Bush that Guantanamo Bay was going to be fine. Why? Because it's offshore. So it's not a tax haven, but it's a torture haven or an mm -hmm. internment haven. And the people there are not American citizens, they're foreign citizens. So you see the way in which if you're playing games with law rather than treating human rights as ultimate ethical human values, all sorts of abuses suddenly become more palatable and possible. There's a passage in your book that I found very, very powerful, which takes a quite quite a different tack to that of intimidation. And it's a quote from Rachel North, who was caught up in the London bombings of 7-7 and then became one of the leading voices for fundamental rights and freedoms. When terrorists attack us, they try to divide us. They want a panicked reaction and a divisive draconian response. It plays into their propaganda machine and by deeming them our terrible enemies against whom we must wage war we dignify and glorify their hateful cause. But what I learned on July the 7th, 2005, was that we are each other's best security. We are the guardians of each other's liberties. I learned this when the bomb exploded, and on each carriage of the train, trapped underground in the terrifying darkness, and screaming women and men took each other's hands and comforted and calmed each other, shared water and passed around tissues, while other women and men ran to rescue the injured. Further horror and injury were prevented by people's calm and altruistic response. And in the darkness, you couldn't know if the person who reached to touch you was female or male or what race or religion they were. Just a stranger in the dark on whom your sanity and survival depended. I have held on to that lesson ever since. Rachel North, The Guardian, 11th of July 2008. Shami, has your faith in advocating fundamental freedoms and rights ever been challenged by events such as these, or maybe even strengthened? Look, we're all human, and so you can be disheartened when terrible things happen and when terrible human rights abuses like terrorist atrocities are, are perpetrated. But then you, you see the, the courage and the wisdom of people like Rachel North. She's a 7-7 seven, seven survivor and she goes on to speak like that and to write like that. 
and you're heartened again. Because in the end, I think it's solidarity that um, that gives us hope, uh, remembering that we're not alone, none of us are alone. And these human rights values are, in my view, universal. They're, they're either um, they're aspired to by people all over the world. And, you know, we've, we're so lucky to live in a democracy like the United Kingdom where we can afford to sometimes take our human rights for granted. You know, people who do my job in other countries don't get to challenge politicians on TV and never face arrest. You know, they, they, they get disappeared. They get um, arrested um, on a regular basis. So it's a great privilege to do this work in a democracy like ours, but it's also a, a responsibility to, to not be cowed by events and... Um, and to remember that these liberties were hard won by people who were not naive, by people who had lived through World War Two, And, you know, we, we hold their legacy on trust for the generations yet to come. Now, the police have come in for quite a bit of criticism from Liberty over the years, but you've also spoken of many officers supporting you and your work, at least in private. Do you sense a disconnect between policemen and women on the beat and the senior management? Um, sometimes there has been uh, a disconnect. At the end of the day, um, what human rights lawyers and activists and police officers have in common and ought to have in common is uh, a belief in the rule of law. Uh, at the end of the day, you can have no democracy, you can have no civilised society or, 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 or decent society without a basic rule of law. And um, and the police are there to keep the peace and serve the rule of law. They are there to be independent of politics. I think that's incredibly important. Mm. Um, and we have often um, spoken up for that. And yes, we have been critical friends of the police, I would put it like that. At times, the disconnect between senior officers and those on the beat comes when senior officers become too party political. And, and we've often spoken against that and I think um, found some real allies and some real sympathy from the, from those who actually do the work and don't want to be all over the TV and don't want to be advocating for this new police power or that new law or taking sides in party politics, but, but just want to be of the people. That's the great British policing tradition, that they shouldn't be militaristic, they shouldn't be servants of the executive, they should come from us, they should be citizens. That's why our police officers wear blue and not Red, which would have been the original military red, um, that is the the best of the of the British policing tradition, and um, it's something that ought to be protected. Well, your next object is closely associated with the police, and you've chosen the scales of justice. So these are pretty. This is a pretty classic um, set of scales. It, it represents justice, and it represents justice in this country. It's I suppose a, the statue on the the top of the um, the old bailey. Well, exactly. Um, I mean. Justice above the Old Bailey has is blind, as am I on the cover of my book. <laughs> that was one of the arguments that uh, that my friends at Penguin gave for a pretty scary image of me blindfold on the on the front of On Liberty. But yes, scale a sword in one hand and and scales in the other, and this is relevant to you know to to the parts of the book that are about the importance of access to justice, to legal aid. Um, to equal treatment under the law, something that um, is always the first to go. You know, if we, I, I often talk to audiences about all the different rights and freedoms, and we've talked about some of them today: privacy and 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 no torture, etc., etc. Et and I often ask audiences which right they think is the most important. 
And, of course, adults don't want to shout out because they don't want to be embarrassed. Um, um, students and school children are better, and the youngest school children are the best because they know no fear and they will shout out what they think their favourite human right is and what's the most important. Yours at 11 say death penalty for the ripper. <laughs> Absolutely. So what, what is the most common thing that the well, young ones say? Well, for me, my answer is equal treatment under the law is actually the most important human right of all because if we really practised the value behind it, which is empathy, there would be no torture and there would be no slavery and there would be no unjustified intrusions into speech and privacy and so on. Because in in my experience, we all love human rights, all of us, even the politicians and journalists that claim that it's madness, they all love human rights of their own and those of their friends and their family and people they love and people they can identify with. It's those other people over there who are different or, for the moment, suspect. Mm-hmm. Um, it's their human rights that are a problem. And that's why it's so important that we have the scales of justice as the symbol for the rule of law in our country. Shami, On Liberty is full of incredibly tough issues and moral dilemmas, but I'd like to play another clip from the audiobook in which we hear about a side that is also hugely important to you. Parenthood. With a small boy to nurture, the need to protect the vulnerable now felt more real, less abstract and philosophical. And just as parents and grandparents ought, no doubt, to find a greater interest in the future of the physical environment, constitutional climate change and the erosion of our rights and freedoms became graver concerns for me with a new stake in the world beyond my lifetime. I also experienced an unexpected feeling of empowerment, perhaps because I'd been so anxious about motherhood as I began to feel that I could manage that, the most important job in the world, other challenges seemed lesser by comparison. Minor infant health scares and mad dashes from the office to the nursery and GP were, after all, as stressful and crucial as anything work could throw up. So this is the eternal juggle between having a professional career and bringing up a child. How much interest does your son pay to your work? My son is very interested in the world and and in, in all of these issues. And at the moment, at the age of 13, where he's reading so much and, and questioning so much in the world, um, it's, um, it's a really nice moment of of engagement. Now, no doubt his disillusion will follow, mm-hmm. um, just like Jean Louise or Scout in... Mockingbird and Ghost Setter Watchmen, but for the moment, it's really nice to to see some common values and and common concerns. Okay, are you ever tempted to spy on your own child in terms of what he's texting or no, I, I, reading I, on the internet? I the, look, the internet is a massive challenge, and all parents must be concerned yeah. about their about their children's use of it because it is still a relatively new and amazing technology. And this is the experimental generation. It will all be fine in the end, I am sure, as as with the printing press, which no doubt was considered very dangerous in its its time. The real protection has to come from education and conversation and argument rather than than surveillance. So is it going to follow in your footsteps, do you think? Oh, I hope not. I mean, there's there's so many wonderful things that one can do with one's life, I, I think it's dangerous to follow in your parents' footsteps. I, th- I think that can, you know... But I wouldn't tell him what to do or what not to do. I, I just look forward to, you know, to seeing seeing what he does. Um, what scares you most about his growing up years compared to 
the fears that you had when you were growing up at the same at that age? I think that my generation has not done a brilliant job and I do worry about the the world that our children's generation is inheriting. They didn't um, crunch the credit or warm the planet or start all these wars, the real ones and the metaphorical wars. Mm -hmm. I think that my generation of 40-somethings has left a, a less equal, more dangerous world in lots of ways. I think this is a, a pretty scary moment. There are lots of grave challenges to the next generation. That said... Um, one of the wonderful things about being a human rights campaigner is having the opportunity to travel around the country and sometimes beyond and, and listen to and speak to audiences of young people. And that gives me hope that we can equip them, at least, with the ability to make a better fist of things than, than perhaps our generation has. From being a mother to your own mother, who you talk so warmly of in your book and with whom you would clearly have loved to have shared a special moment in your life which was the opening ceremony of the London Olympics 2012, where you helped carry the Olympic flag. Let's hear a final clip from the audiobook of On Liberty. Danny Boyle's extravaganza was a sight to behold. There was no hint of the pomp and military-style uniformity of the Beijing Games that some had feared the big smoke would be unable to follow. And yet, what a display of a different kind of power in the modern world. Shakespeare was celebrated, but so were the suffragettes. The Industrial Revolution was remembered in a particularly theatrically ingenious spectacle, but so was the Windrush. There was Elga and punk, while the NHS and the internet were rightly highlighted as great free treasures of British design. This was the soft power of diversity and ingenuity and values confidently displayed to the world. This ceremony set the tone for a wonderful summer of internationalism and sport, culminating in perhaps an even more inspiring and prejudice-busting para-Olympic Games. This was our country rubbing along together, a country that aspired to be the equal of any, but no one superior, except perhaps on the field of sporting battle. Amy Winehouse didn't live to sing at the Olympics in her beloved London, it's hardly fanciful to suggest that she would have been asked. However, the equally beautiful and talented young Emily Sande sang like an angel, aged just 25. My mother never lived to see those Olympics in the adopted city where she lived for most of her life. But I wore some Indian pearls she'd given me to the opening ceremony that summer. And somehow, I think she might have been proud. And you have those pearls with you here today. As heard in the clip, they belong to Shami's mother, who died in 2012. She was clearly an enormous inspiration to you, having read to you so consistently through your childhood, whilst your father argued with you. Uh, as a mother yourself now, how much has she influenced you, do you think? I think she was a huge influence. I think perhaps I didn't realise that enough when she was around. She read to me from the beginning. She taught me to read before I went to school. And sadly, you know, she didn't live to see my book, what my, my son calls my short book with large font, Mum. <laughs> but, um, but it wouldn't have been possible without her. And yes, I think her, her influence was enormous, both the literacy and the sensitivity and the underlying values. She was a great example of... Um, 
of how we can be kind to each other and we can rub along with people from all sorts of different places and, and walks of life. What are your future ambitions? Do you have thoughts of entering back into Mordor, perhaps, as a politician? Goodness me, I I, I don't really know. I, I think that I am a human rights person. What one does for a living and what, how one gets a salary is, is a different matter. I will always be a, a human rights activist of some kind or other. So, so do you think that if you had to become a full-time politician, that that would compromise... I am you. a Democrat. I am a passionate Democrat and therefore I believe in democratic politics. I'm not, I do have some, some harsh words from certain politicians in the book, but I think I also quote some other politicians from across the political spectrum who have been real human rights heroes and continue to be in difficult and challenging times. I have dear friends who are politicians and I respect and admire many. That doesn't mean that that is necessarily my vocation. I don't know that I'm the sort of person who could naturally toe a party line with which I disagreed. And we do our work not just to be effective and to be successful, we also do our work to um, to be happy. That said, I definitely want to see more women in politics and I encourage every young woman that I meet practically to, to not do as I do, but to do as I suggest they should. <laughs> Which perfectly brings us to the end of this episode of the Penguin Podcast. Jamé, thank you very, very much indeed. Thank you, Richard. Pleasure. Evicted is the New York Times bestseller from Harvard sociologist Matthew Desmond. A work combining scholarship and reportage, this masterful book transforms our understanding of extreme poverty and economic exploitation in America – while providing fresh ideas for solving a devastating problem. Even in the most desolate areas of American cities, evictions used to be rare. They used to draw crowds. Eviction riots erupted during the Depression, even though the number of poor families who faced eviction each year was a fraction of what it is today. A New York Times account of community resistance to the eviction of three Bronx families in February 1932 observed, probably because of the cold, the crowd numbered only 1,000. Sometimes neighbors confronted the marshals directly, sitting on the evicted family's furniture to prevent its removal or moving the family back in despite the judge's orders. The marshals themselves were ambivalent about carrying out evictions. It wasn't why they carried a badge and a gun. These days, there are sheriff squads whose full-time job is to carry out eviction and foreclosure orders. There are moving companies specializing in evictions, their crews working all day, every weekday. There are hundreds of data mining companies that sell landlords tenant screening reports listing past evictions and court filings. These days, housing courts swell, forcing commissioners to settle cases in hallways or makeshift offices crammed with old desks and broken file cabinets, and most tenants don't even show up. Low-income families have grown used to the rumble of moving trucks, the early morning knocks at the door, the belongings lining the curb. Families have watched their incomes stagnate or even fall, while their housing costs have soared. Today, the majority of poor renting families in America spend over half of their income on housing, and at least one in four dedicates over 70% to paying the rent and keeping the lights on. Millions of Americans are evicted every year because they can't make rent. 
In Milwaukee, a city of fewer than 105,000 renter households, landlords evict roughly 16,000 adults and children each year. That's 16 families evicted through the court system daily. But there are other ways, cheaper and quicker ways, for landlords to remove a family than through court order. Some landlords pay tenants a couple hundred dollars to leave by the end of the week. Some take off the front door. Nearly half of all forced moves experienced by renting families in Milwaukee are informal evictions that take place in the shadow of the law. If you count all forms of involuntary displacement, formal and informal evictions, landlord foreclosures, building condemnations, you discover that between 2009 and 2011, more than one in eight Milwaukee renters experienced a forced move. There is nothing special about Milwaukee when it comes to eviction. The numbers are similar in Kansas City, Cleveland, Chicago, and other cities. In 2013, one in eight poor renting families nationwide were unable to pay all of their rent, and a similar number thought it was likely they would be evicted soon. This book is set in Milwaukee, but it tells an American story. Evicted by Matthew Desmond is available now on iTunes and Audible.